There are few people in Australia's hospitality scene that command the level of respect amongst peers that our next guest does. Amanda Yallop is the Group Wine Director at Fink, overseeing an extensive and demanding program of leading restaurants and bars, Key, Benelong, Otto Sydney, Otto Brisbane, Firedor, Surrey Hills, Gilders and the beach at Byron Bay. In 2013, Amanda became a scholar of Len Evans Tutorial. She's an alumni of the Advanced Wine Assessment course through the Australian Wine Research Institute, a wine judge in Australia and also at the Decanter UK Wine Awards, as well as the annual Runar Challenge in Australia. Amanda was awarded Golden Milliau's Sommelier of the Year 2016 and is a Dame Chevalier of the Ordre de Coteau de Champagne, amongst many other things. I had the pleasure of spending a week with Amanda recently during Harvest 2022, where it's fair to say that we bonded over some great wines and very good times. So Amanda, you have had a very extensive history working in management and operational roles across all levels of restaurants and hospitality venues, and obviously overseeing a really prestigious group of venues right now across Australia, which is just amazing. And I'm wondering, you know, where did your passion for wine start and in particular for champagne? Uh, it was actually was probably a, quite a slow burn. I fell into wine by accident and it was over a period of time as I learned about wine that I fell in love with a few champagne producers randomly. And it was when I was discovering those champagne producers, I found them compelling and wanting to dig a little bit deeper. So I don't think it was just one sort of moment where I thought, this is it, I must go there, I must be there. But it was one of those things that I essentially went, oh, I, I need more of that. And I just kept digging deeper and looking wider. And it's a really exciting opportunity because I do think that the wine industry is at its peak right now. And I think that when you look at the champagne producers, particularly the ones that we get in Australia, I think I was actually quite lucky when I fell in love with champagne and I wanted to go further. When you look at the champagne producers in Australia, we've got obviously we've got all the big grand marks, but all the growers, they were pretty much hand-selected by distributors. So we had some of the very best growers in Australia. We're here when I go to the UK or when I go to France, there's a plethora of growers, which I find to be really exciting. The growers that actually entered Australia were all the finest, all the most exciting. And I think that's what woke people up because we had those gatekeepers that made sure that the, the producers that came in were exceptional. Yeah, really exciting. So you were talking about grower champagne. And yeah. it's obviously something that's piqued your interest. So I'm wondering, it's, it's a difficult sort of category to get into because you don't always know where to start and where to go with that interest because there's so much out there. And obviously, we're looking more specifically at terroir. It's a difficult, uh, I guess, pathway for some people to take to discover the growers. And I'm wondering, do you have any advice? What have you done personally to sort of take that pathway and learn more about grower champagne? Well, there's actually, there's a lot of things to do. Number one, engage with other people that are into growers and into grand marks. Don't dismiss any conversation. I'm a big fan of grand marks and of growers. I think that you, it's not that you can only have one and not the other. And some people believe that if you're into growers, you cannot like grand marks. I think that that's a uh, fiction. Yeah. I do think that when you talk to other people, you hear another voice adds color to, and dimension to the conversation. The fact is, just like any other area of the wine industry, you must taste have to taste and it's by tasting that you will build your mental wine library and as you become more familiar and more comfortable when you're tasting then also have a look at the technical sheets where, where they're available have a conversation with somebody else see what they see you know be prepared to listen to dissent listen to somebody else's opinion if it's not the same as yours because it's not a personal attack it's just different i think that people think that when they're to grow a champagne it's like when they're into minimal intervention wine and they must like one idea and one road and i think that that's the wrong way to go about it. The more we look at, the more we talk about, the more we read. And I think that when you're going to read, 
read different voices. Yeah. When you're going to taste, taste different producers, taste different vintages, taste different cuvées. A lot of it's the last bastion where lovers of champagne will say, I only drink, and then they'll name a producer. And they won't even look at a wine list or a, a bar list. They'll name that producer when they sit down and order it. Have a look and try something you haven't had before. Mm. Ask somebody what they haven't had and see if they're willing to try it with you. I mean, because obviously sometimes it can be expensive, particularly mm. in the last few years. Prices in Champagne in Australia have gone up for the first time in a couple of decades. It's a fun ride. Mm. It really is. Mm. I love it. I love it when somebody comes to me and says, I love this wine for this reason. If it's something I haven't tried, I'll definitely try it. If it's something that I'm not really keen on, I'll retry it. Yeah. I love that idea. And I think it's it doesn't hurt to say, I don't know. I've never heard of that producer. I don't yeah. know that. It's so easy to do. It's the only well. way to learn, isn't it? It's to the only push way yourself to learn. out there. Absolutely. <laughs> and I mean, my ego is pretty safe. I've been in the industry for quite a while. I've tried quite, I, you know, I'm, I'm really fortunate, probably in a privileged position where when I am in Champagne, I do get to try things that other people don't get to try. Whenever I'm traveling, I get to try uh, really amazing wines, opportunities with different vintages. And it's that vintage depth that also adds color. That's something that doesn't sort of come overnight. It comes through time and just being open to it. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the, my favorite times in Champagne, and I've been many, many times, is last year in Harvest when we had just by chance a bevy of Australian women in town at the same time. It didn't matter what we did during the day. At the end of the day, we got together and just everybody checked their egos at the door and had a conversation about what they saw, what they tasted, who they met. That was a huge amount of fun and a great learning opportunity. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, just more and more women. It was like a magnet. It's yeah. fabulous. It was good fun. It so was much fun. fun. Have to yeah. do it again. Definitely. <laughs> So you're talking about tasting and how important it is just to taste, taste, taste and really put yourself out there insofar as pushing your own knowledge and your palate. But I'm wondering, you know, you've had this amazing wine journey and you've developed your palate very technically over the years as well. And I'm wondering what specific, I guess, tips can you give to people from an actual tasting and sensory point of view, how to really, you know, deconstruct champagne and understand it in more detail, because I feel that you don't approach champagne in the same way as you do a still wine there are some other elements to it and it's a lot more complex as well so how would you suggest to people about going through that deconstruction of understanding wine from a tasting point of view absolutely well there's a couple of different ways of doing it whether you're going to do it in a technical sense where you're going to do it in the privacy of your own home or in a workshop where you can control the environment yeah we say you need to make sure i'm in a space where there's no other smells you make sure that the wine glass that you are tasting out of is clean essential and mm -hmm. room temperature where possible i do encourage you to when you're trying wines to use the same glass all the time it's the different shapes of the glass will deliver the wine onto the palate in a different sort of manner so when you can control the environment you make sure that the wine is the right temperature the stem where you're using is clean and there's no other aroma and that includes you know people wearing you know aftershave and perfume and deodorant you want to make sure you don't have any of those extra aromas around because they can influence what you're doing that's obviously different to when you're in a restaurant or a bar or a friend's house you're trying something for the first time mm -hmm. when you do try something for the first time keep in mind that i think acid is important for me i have a rule no acid no interest that's particularly important for champagne mm. it adds a level of precision and freshness I'm Australian, born and bred in Australia, and in the last 25 years, there's been a renaissance in the wine industry where all the wines we drink, pretty much the mass majority, are bottled under Stilvan, mm. which means that our wines are clean and fresh and bright. Mm. And even when they've got a bit of age, they're clean and fresh and bright. And I think this is where the champagne market comes in because we have, a, a, I have to check the numbers, but we have a very large following of champagne lovers in Australia that drink an enormous or purchase an enormous amount of champagne. And so I think because we are attuned to that freshness in wine, 
we're attracted to freshness in champagne. Yeah. And when you're tasting champagne, please make sure you've had water before you drink the champagne. If you are thirsty, it's very hard to calibrate the level of acidity. Mm. And for me, it's all about it's the aroma, it's the flavor, it's the structure and the texture mm. in, the, in the palate. Mm-hmm. I like a fat champagne. I like a lean champagne. I just need to know what I'm sort of going to expect, but it's all about recognizing the texture. And if you take a moment through design and intent, stop what you're doing and have a sip, whether it's in a controlled environment or in a loud, noisy bar, just concentrate on what's in that glass. Mm. Don't go in with a preconceived idea of, my friend Amanda said it's really good wine. Mm. Go in with, what am I going to see? Mm. People spend pretty large sums of money on champagne, so you want to make sure that they're getting something that they enjoy. Yeah. But if you really want to have a deep dive and learn about it, you actually have to stop and be quite critical. And for me, it's all about the framework, of the, mm. whether it's a still wine or a champagne. Mm. Champagne has different framework. It has different levels of complexity. Just that waterlistic characteristic adds something else. But once you have a fine bead, for me, I love it. It's just <laughs> so elegant. It's so elegant. Yeah. And it, there's a brightness to, to quite a few wines that can be 25, 30, 40 years old, and they just look sublime. Yeah. That's when they become illicit, almost evocative to taste. Yeah. yeah. So talking about people's enjoyment mm. and trying to find out where their palate is, you obviously oversee a number of restaurants, a number of venues where you have to develop an incredibly you know, a diverse wine list, including around Champagne, you have one of the very best award-winning wine lists here in Australia. And I'm wondering, what is your approach? Because you would have to be taking into consideration the style of every venue, anticipating consumer needs, also probably a little bit biased as well, maybe swaying towards some things that you personally like. I'm just wondering, how do you actually go about developing a wine program for each of these places? You're definitely right about the bias. (laughs) You know, it's something that you just have to be aware of. It doesn't yeah. mean that it stops, but you just have to take note. The fact is, when we look at the champagne list, it's an integral part, a component of our wine list. And they're things that I consider to be an organic landscape because the seasons change, the menu changes, the staff that you have actually selling the wine change. And that's actually one of the important features. Essentially, we need to have something that's going to appear to a variety of people. And that is something that is safe and secure that they've had before, something that's new and bright and I do think that what was once considered to be conventional viticulture and vinification is now going to be moved into that more minimal intervention sort of dynamic. And that within that paradigm, a lot of producers that haven't been noticed before will be seen. And so a lot of people are very loud about liking that style of wine, but they don't necessarily understand what it means or how to find it. Yes. And so it's really educating the staff so they know how to ask a guest what they're looking for. Because some guests... They know what they want. Some guests have no clue what they want and some people are open to suggestion. And by having run marks, by having small growers, by having wines that are dry as a bone, by having rosés, blanc de noirs, blanc de blancs. Blanc de blanc you can sell in a heartbeat. People go for it. As soon as they see the word blanc de blanc, they buy it, particularly if it's by the glass. Mm. But I think blanc de noir is one of those wines that when you, when you have it with foods, I love it. I definitely, when I'm having a bottle of champagne with a meal, I will often go towards a Pinot Noir heavy dominant wine or 100% Pinot Noir Mm. or Meunier as well. Yeah. So you mentioned before about seeing maybe a bit of a trend around people moving to minimalistic styles of champagne and maybe also that means more sustainably farmed champagne as well. So that is something that you're perceiving in your customers that they are looking for things like that or is is that something that you are just generally noticing in the champagne industry and this is something you're trying to adopt 
within the restaurants that you manage? I think it's both, actually. I think it's definitely something that the Champenoise are focused on. And it's something that, obviously, it's coming from a governing body, so you've got to take that as you will. But the fact is, the producers, the people that live in these regions, they're farming on that land. They want to make sure that their land is the best it's ever been. So they are actually taking steps to protect the health and the, and the biota within their land. I think that consumers are catching up to that idea. The fact is people who are into it are quite loud. They're not necessarily indicative of the larger piece of the market, but they will be in the future. It's one of those things that we are more aware of what we do and what we taste. In the past, when it came to wine, people just drank whatever they were familiar with because they knew that that's what they were going to enjoy. Every single person you know has a smartphone. They want to know what their friends drank on the weekend. They want to try something different. When we're looking at the producers moving in one direction, we're looking at consumers looking moving in exactly the same direction but sort of in a more of a lateral move. Mm. We are all heading in the same headspace of what we're looking for. And essentially, we're looking for things that are unique and different. We want, we want to have diversity. We want to have something that nobody else has had. We don't want to have a reskinned version of last year's wine. And I think that consumers are catching up to that. I think that the language is certainly there and it's causing a little bit of confusion, a little bit of noise, but consumers are definitely getting there. And people will specifically ask for something that's a little bit different or minimal intervention. Why they're quite loud when they're asked, it's still a very small component. But I do think that I personally am interested in that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a guarantee of quality when you get wine that's been produced in a minimalist style. But I do think it's well worth a conversation, well worth a taste. Mm. And, you know, it, it's unusual. In Australia, we say, oh, I've looked at that wine and I really enjoyed it. I'm quite conscious of when I speak to somebody in the international uh, guests in our dining room, the episode tasted that wine. Mm. It's a very strange thing to do. Yeah. I've looked at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm curious then, there's obviously some producers you have in mind as you're talking about all of this. And I'm wondering, you know, who are those producers and why are you so impressed by them? Oh, actually, there's quite a few. So I'll probably limit it to producers such as Ulysses Collin, Frederick Savart, Eric Rodez. Yeah. Their wines have smart precision. Yeah acute acidity and normally opulent richly textured in style Mm. and i love that Mm. you know you can have a quiet champagne that offers a compelling voice Mm. it's like a whisper in the air and you can have a loud fat champagne that just offers everything that you're looking for yeah i think it just depends on your mood yeah i do think that when i look at single vineyard wines by savart or or Rodez. These are wines that you find yourself thinking about because they often are a little more vinous mm-hmm. in style. Mm-hmm. And I think that people who love champagne either love vinous champagne or hate it. Yeah. It, it doesn't have to be a fence to die on. You can actually say, I like both. Yeah. But I think too, it goes well with gastronomy, obviously. And this is what you are all about. And, and that is a beautiful message, I think, for these champagnes to be complemented with menus such as the ones that you offer as well. And they find their natural place there because I think when you're looking more leaner, then obviously we're talking more, probably a bit more palate friendly, easier to drink and aperitif style. So it's about, I guess, finding, um, you know, wherever they fit. But also maisons. I know that you are so passionate about some of the maisons that you have on your wine list. Mm-hmm. I can name a few of them because I know your palate. But I'm wondering, it would be interesting to hear from you as to why you love some of the Maisons that you do and why you think they are so important and so superior to others. Well, I mean, that list is as long as my arm is to the Maisons that I really enjoy, but the ones that I truly love and go to and find myself going, I shouldn't have that again because I've had a child side sick, which is a producer that we pour across pink by the glass. It's just the quality is 
consistent, it's exciting. I love their vintage wines. I have had the pleasure of trying some of their wines from the 70s and the 80s and they just stand up. I love that. And I find it really, really exciting. I think that, I mean, Krug is without peer. Yeah. Uh, well, maybe Salon. <laughs> Krug and Salon. Depends, you know, my budget doesn't really go to drinking those all the time. But yes, yeah. I know for a fact that it's a secure bottle of quality. Mm. When I look at Maisons such as Agrippa and Aigle Urier, I know that I find their wines dynamic. Mm. And for me, as I was saying before, it's the acidity, it's the freshness, it's the texture, it's the structure of those wines that I love to look at on the palate. You're constantly looking for something different. Yeah. I love that. I'm very conscious of the fact that if I have a vintage champagne, I have it slightly warmer than if I have a non-vintage champagne, but I can't help myself. Yeah. The nerd in me is sort of <laughs> overwhelmed by looking at that. You know, we have some amazing Maisons. If you look at Bollinger, you look at their Grandonnet, you look at Le Mandier Bernier, you look at uh, what Fabrice Puyon is making, all of these wines, you just can't help yourself. Mm. I can name probably 24 producers that are sort of go-to for me. Mm. But when I look at Tattinger, Comps mm. and Prelude, when I look at what Rhoda is doing at the moment, you can't help but being compelled into jumping into those producers and drinking those wines. Yeah. yeah. I think champagne is very exciting at the moment. There's, there's a lot happening and we're seeing quality at levels that we've never experienced before so I'm wondering I know you're passionate too and you taste all the time and I I know that sense of excitement that comes from you around champagne what is specifically exciting for you right now at at this moment in time with champagne the single vineyards yeah it's definitely the single vineyards when you can see the single vineyards that are coming in because I think that obviously when they're being shipped to Australia people are paying serious money to make sure they're shipped in ideal condition Mm. and the stock that we're getting on site in Australia generally speaking, is in the condition that the winemaker wants you to see it at. Mm. When I see single vineyards from some producers, I can't help it. If my budget will allow, I'll definitely go there. (laughs) It's really cool because in the past we really were looking at Australia is really a non-vintage market, Mm. uh, which is absolutely fine. I think that there's some extraordinary non-vintages out there, which I love. But if you look at something like Claude de Gosset by uh, excuse my Claude de Gosset yeah Gosset yes you just can't help yourself these wines are exciting yeah you know they speak to you mm-hmm. I want more of that and I think that because it's an indication of what's been grown in one plot of land in one particular vintage and it's been the quality of that fruit's been harnessed for that one wine people want to have that they want to have something different mm. I would have something different I think many consumers do I'm wondering what the challenges are insofar as being able to communicate some of that single parcel terroir information because it's hard enough sometimes for people like us to receive that information and to really get to the bottom of what this wine is all about, let alone being able to pass that knowledge on to staff and for them to pass it on to the customer in the restaurant wanting to know a little bit more, why should they spend an extra $100 on a bottle of something that's come from less than half a hectare? And, you know, so I'm just wondering how do you manage that communication message with your staff and ultimately to the consumer? Well, unfortunately for the staff, it's not optional. They must learn that. Uh, (laughs) It's one of the features of working in the industry where you have to learn about a lot of things, whether you're into it or not, uh, because you have to have a deep understanding in order to convey that information. Fortunately, the people who are actually asking about those sort of things are already well-informed or well-interested and actually just have to have a level of interest to make it easier to explain. We certainly don't shove information down our guests' throats. If 
we take a cue from the guests by something that they're asking, we'll certainly share that information or ask them if they're interested in listening to it. Because the fact is, you can't push that onto somebody who's not interested. No. The people who are interested are already raising their hands and saying, what is this? Yes. Uh, Where do you get that? And often the next question is, how do you get it? Mm. That's the question we sort of struggle with. You know, as you're aware, in Australia, we've had a bit of a shortage in premium champagnes and non-vintage champagnes and that's the next question i get from guests all the time i love that wine where can i get it Mm -mm. so i'm just wondering looking more at the food side of champagne and and possibilities there when recommending champagne to be paired with food are there some general principles that you gravitate to or what you know when you're recommending to customers a bottle of champagne uh, well, I have a very sort of, it's a palette I have in my head of when I'm doing food and wine matching. And a lot of people think it's really very complicated, but it's actually much easier than they expect. And it's a lot of fun. I quite enjoy it. And I think a lot of people who work in the industry do enjoy it. I look at the hero element of the dish, which is nearly always a protein. You look at the method of cooking, you look at the garnish, you look at the weather. You know, what you're going to drink on a summer's afternoon on a Tuesday is what you're going to drink differently to a Saturday night in winter. It's the sort of mood that you sort of follow. We intrinsically drink things according to our mood. If I go somewhere and the champagne by the glass is not very good, I'll have a gin and tonic. (laughs) You know, it's one of those things you just sort of adapt and adjust. When you are doing food and wine matching, the method of cooking is very, very important. A lot of people sort of miss that, whether it's something that's been cured, something that's been deep fried, something that's been steamed. It's all of those little bits and pieces. Something that's covered in butter is completely different to something that was just steamed in its lemon juice Mm. or its own juices. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's adapting to that sort of idea. Always beware of vinegar. Always be wary (laughs) of vinegar and grapefruit. They're the things that I really want to avoid. We have a lot of Asian cuisine in Australia and we have a lot of like radishes and turnips and people love to dress them in vinegar. Mm. And that can be an angry match. Yes. Yes. So, so that's interesting. I think maybe I should ask you, are there absolutely, you know, deal breakers when it comes to food? You mentioned vinegar. Is, is that a deal breaker or is it just got to be a certain kind of vinegar? No, it's, it's, in the, it's in the all same... but. Okay. It's all but a deal breaker. And the other one for me is if you're having something with chili, avoid a champagne with any, any wine with oak. But essentially, if you're going to have chili in the dish, make sure the champagne you're drinking has not been influenced by oak because mm. oak and uh, chili are mortal enemies. <laughs> It's like some blood feud that's happening there. That's really interesting to know. You are a Dame Chevalier of the Order de Cote de Champagne. It's a really prestigious recognition and it really signifies all of the hard work that you've done as an ambassador for Champagne in your role. And I'm wondering in that journey that you have had for such a long time now, what have been some of the standout moments for you insofar as the people that you have been mentored by, encouraged by, who inspires you in that journey? Number one, it is a privilege to be allowed into this community of champagne lovers. And I was really sort of taken aback and I didn't realise how big it was until it actually occurred. It was done with all the pomp and stance that you would imagine yeah. from the champagne Yes. But it also means that I take things very seriously when I already take things in my industry quite seriously, but when I talk about champagne and when I, particularly in an open environment, I'm very aware that when I'm surrounded by people that, sometimes you haven't met before, very conscious of making sure that I don't share anything negative. Uh, Because sometimes you will have something negative, but it's something that you can do in a close environment with safe colleagues. Yes, of course. Versus when you're speaking with somebody or a group of people that are very new to Champagne and listening, it's all about supporting the community. Mm. And I do think that the Champagnois are very, very good at that. But it's one of those things that, you know, I consider it to be quite an honour and I'm really pleased about it. And it surprises me how 
I'm more likely to edit because of that. No, I, I edit in day-to-day environments in the dining room or at a tasting with other people because there are certain things you only share in a safe world and there are certain things that you share uh, to the masses. But particularly champagne, I'm aware of that because I think it's really exciting. But I love the work that they're doing in order to encourage the conversation about champagne. Essentially, this is a region where you always hear about what the, the governing laws and what they're trying to stop and somebody's doing something they want to prevent. But the fact is they're actually there to support and and mm give a little bit of TLC to the region. Mm -hmm. When you buy a bottle of champagne on release, it's already ready to be drunk. These wines have already been aged for a minimum period of time. Generally speaking, even though the non-vintage is a short period of time, it's nearly always been in cellars for at least three years. So they're promoting the, for lack of a better word, the entry-level wines more than anything else. There's no other region in the world that promotes their entry-level wines above their prestige cubase. You speak to any producer and like, this is the most expensive wine that you can buy from my my stable of wines. doesn't matter if you're in California, if you're in Margaret River, or if you're in Brunello. It's the same sort of thing. Champenoise, they're always going for their non-vintage wines. And I think that that's really, really cool. And I think that that's something that I'm quite conscious of. But I do think that there are so many good non-vintage wines that are exceptional that if you can't find a vintage that you're really keen on, you know that you can get a non-vintage that you'll enjoy. Yeah. I think what's interesting too, we're seeing this trend around the premiumization of the non-vintage category. Absolutely. Which is really exciting. And it gives you, I think, wonderful opportunities in the restaurant business because they are designed mostly, I think, for gastronomy. But it's an indication that the non-vintage Vintages really are premium already. You know that there's a lot of prestige in, in where they're sourcing their fruit from, often from Grand and Premier Cru. So, you know, I'm wondering from your point of view, you know, what sort of opportunities are there there around that sort of getting people more exposed to, I guess, trading up from that entry level, as you mentioned, into something a little bit, a little bit better from a quality point of view, maybe yeah. with longer lease aging, but also more expensive. Absolutely. We're talking specifically about the non-vintage prestige. Correct, yeah. I think often these bottles will be labelled as Grand Cru or Premier Cru or perhaps single vineyard. Even as a non-vintage, they'll still sort of stand out. But the fact is normally when somebody sees a massive difference in the price between one non-vintage and another, they'll normally ask the question. Gives us great opportunity because a lot of people are aware vaguely how champagne is produced. They know it can be a blend of varieties, it can be a blend of villages, it can be a blend of years, and it's telling them why that actually adds to a level of cost and what the cost equals in the glass and how you can equate that because it's a very difficult thing to measure, but it's a great thing to enjoy. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great thing to enjoy. Absolutely. And it's having that conversation and sharing that with people that they get. And I do think that it's, as you say, there are a lot more of those prestige cuvées that are non-vintage blends that people are going for. Mm. I love introducing a really sexy non-vintage to mm. somebody and them trying it. It's exciting. It is really exciting because, you know, they're, they're, they're intrigued. They're intrigued. People, yeah. It's the surprise because they can actually see the quality in the glass. Yeah. yeah. As long as everything we say to be true is true. Good to go. Good to go. I know that you have had some absolutely unforgettable moments with champagne. I've had some of those with you as well. And I'm wondering from your point of view, you know, what have been some of those absolute highlight moments for you that you will never forget? Well, as you say, I mean, we had quite a few uh, last year. (laughs) But over the years, one that I go back to is drinking Claude de Manel in the Claude de Manel vineyard. Mm. It was such a, a surprise sort of opportunity. And we literally, I was on holiday. And when I was on holiday, I was in France. I went to Burgundy and I went to Champagne. I was lucky enough to secure a visit with Krug mm. probably about 10 years ago. My husband was driving 
Yeah. And so they arranged for a driver to collect us and drive us around from our hotel so my husband could taste everything at the same time. And we had a visit to Crook in the cellars before they had their refurb. And then they drove us around to have a look at a few vineyards and they took us into Clos de Vanille where you actually see they have a – where they produce the fruit is carried about 40 metres from the vines straight into being pressed in their own press house that's in the vineyard. They've got this huge oak tree with a table underneath. And we, after walking through the vineyard and walking through the press house and just talking about crook, they pulled out a bottle of Clos de Manil and mm. we all had a glass of Clos de Manil in the vineyard. And it was actually one of those moments, it was like a, a loud, quiet moment. Yeah. It was really calm. And just as we're about to take the first sip, you could just hear this tractor screaming down the road with all this noise in the background, like we're actually in farm country having yes. A magnificent sort of moment yeah. and I, I still remember because I remember thinking mm-hmm. it's weird that it's so quiet and mm-hmm. it feels quite powerful and it was a privilege I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have that and so probably two moments and that would be one and the other one would be equally 10 or so years ago with Thierry Rosé who was the winemaker at Charles Heidsick many years ago we were having a walk around the Crayers we stopped at their Enoteca and he said oh Amanda pick a bottle and we'll have that with some snacks upstairs and I picked a bottle of 85 Charles Heidsick Rosé. And there was a, a little, there's all these little, you've seen them, all these little beds in the walls where the bottles are, are in a nest. And he's like, oh, I'm going to take this particular bottle. He grabbed it. We went upstairs and we had it with some cheese and saucisson. Yeah. And it was just. As simple as that. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Had it in large glasses. It was cellar temperature. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't cold like it came from the fridge. And you could just see so much more. And I think the second glass was better than the first glass. And the, I mean, you had this audacious acidity you had this really really faint bead that was just prickly like a gentle prickle on the palate mm. and i just remember the flavors it was just insane it was such a privilege it was dry it was savory mm. and it's just that again it's one of those moments you just stop and i mean we're not changing the world from covid or curing cancer <laughs> but at the same time we just had this it's the incidental moments in our yeah. day and that's something that i didn't expect yeah and i can still remember vividly today i can smell the garden as we walk past the garden to get into the little tasting house it was just incredible and i think that why all of those moments won't be the same there's bound to be a moment where you're just hanging out with some girlfriends or family and you just open a bottle and go that was a cracker yeah absolute cracker i think that's the important message of champagne is that you don't have to wait for those really big occasions in life it's really about the everyday how can you celebrate the everyday and have an amazing Making the ordinary extraordinary. Absolutely. And a bottle of champagne does that pretty much every time, I think, a good one anyway. Um, I, I think you're right there. And a lot of people, when they have champagne and they want to celebrate, particularly something like a cliche like New Year's Eve, they get some champagne together, they have some friends over, and then they save the most important bottle called Midnight. Please have it at the beginning of the night. Please. <laughs> it's all downhill. <laughs> Please, don't wait until midnight to crack that beauty open. Yeah. Open it on the spot. As soon as the first person walks in the door, share it together. Exactly right. Good advice, Amanda Yellow. Please. <laughs> All right. Well, look, I want to thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure getting to understand, I guess, where your champagne love has come from. And it really does, I think, uh, shine from you. Whenever I'm with you, we always talk about champagne. We nearly always drink champagne whenever we're together. And I think what you do for champagne in Australia is absolutely remarkable because your passion is infectious. It genuinely is. And I know that comes through in everyone you talk to on the floor and certainly with people like me and and others in in the trade. I think what you 
you do. You're very much an ambassador. Totally admire it. And I thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Sarah. Much appreciated. <laughs> Pleasure. Bring <laughs> <Frankly> me blush. <laughs> you were so great. Wine and Bubble is a boutique and independent information source dedicated exclusively to telling the real story of champagne. It was launched by me, Sarah Underdown, in November 2018, after almost a decade of working in the champagne industry as a recognised writer, educator and presenter. Wine and Bubble brings together a network of Australian wine journalists, sommeliers, educators and industry representatives as regular contributors. As a team of champagne lovers and communicators, we are thrilled to share our unique passion with wine-loving audiences. To read more about Champagne, to subscribe to events in Australia and learn more about opportunities to join us for experiences in Champagne, visit vineandbubble.com and register your details.